Hello there, and welcome to SITREP, BFBS Radio's Defence and Global Roundtable Discussion on issues that concern you today and in the future. I'm Christopher Lee. Now, in the next 60 minutes, why the political guns are out to destroy General Dannett's reputation, cyber security in Washington, CIA operations on the AFPAC border, Georgia, 12 months on, who really won what, Iraq, why the killing goes on, and why the Americans want to get hold of the Brit looking for their X-Files, or so he says. Okay, so we start with cybersecurity. What is it? How big is it? Why has the senior White House cybersecurity expert quit, or about to? As anyone who has been following her writing on this, the person who knows all the answers is uh, Ellen Nakashima of the Washington Post. She's on the line. Um, cyber security presumably is the protection of communications that would typically include emails, stored uh, details such as commercial and security files. Is that about it? No, well, that's right, but that's not all. It's also protection of the uh, transportation and banking systems and air traffic control systems, all of which run on uh, often on electronic networks, digital so, infrastructure. So it's a multi-agency activity. Absolutely. And, and the cyber threat covers everything from stealing sensitive military secrets to uh, protecting the ele- electric supply and our trains, uh, keep them from crashing, and to your home laptop. And, and cyber, cyber crime, for instance, costs Americans billions and billions of dollars every year. Tell me about the uh, CNCI, the Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative. What's, what's behind that? Well, that's the initiative uh, launched under the Bush administration in January 2008 and is a, uh, an effort to really protect the federal government computers. And now that we've, we have a new administration, President Obama is, is trying to uh, take it further. He's trying to lay down a marker on cybersecurity to distinguish himself from from his predecessor, uh, not just here, of course, but in, in many other areas, such as torture and Guantanamo and wireless wiretapping, while trying to project that, that the White House is vigilant on national security. So that's the political background. Right. Now... Um now we come to the person that is resigned or announced that she's going uh, later right. this month, which is, who is uh, Melissa E. Hathaway. Now, I got from what you were writing is something of the importance of the, this lady is that she was appointed by the Director of National Intelligence. Mike McConnell, yes. Yeah, and she was strong enough, a strong enough candidate to become the coordinator, the person that's going to pull all this thing together. So why has she gone? Well, it's very interesting. Melissa Hathaway was brought into the federal government by a Bush administration, the top Bush administration intelligence official, DNI Mike McConnell. And he brought her in to handle the cyber cybersecurity portfolio in 2007. Um, she did a very good job at it, and she really helped shepherd this comprehensive national cybersecurity initiative along and, and helped it come into existence. So when Obama took office, he asked her to stay on and asked her to spearhead a 60-day review of all government cyber policies. And this was to culminate in a uh, sort of a big splash with a, a report and 
and the announcement of a cyber, perhaps a new cyber czar, cyber coordinator. So back in the end of May, uh, President Obama made a strong speech from the East Room of the White House. This is the first time a sitting president has ever made a speech like that on cybersecurity. And it was highly acclaimed. It sent the right signals. People felt that this administration was going to take cybersecurity seriously and elevate it to uh, uh, an issue of, of national and economic security. In fact, he called, he called the digital infrastructure a strategic national asset. So all systems were go. People were looking um, to the White House with anticipation. Um, Obama said he was going to personally select a cyber coordinator. And now it's been over two months. So, so what's happened? Well, this is where you see the uh, the political uh, and bureaucratic nature of this of this issue. Because of fierce infighting, this White House position uh, was watered down a bit. It, in, instead of being someone who would report directly to the president, it's a position maybe two rungs below, and has you have to report to both the National Security Advisor and the top economic advisor. There's another side of this, um, Ellen, and that is that when I look at it, I'm looking from the military point of view, mm-hmm. I catch sight of General Keith Alexander at the Department of Defense with his cyber command. And I think um, anybody who gets his coordinated job has got to go up against Keith Alexander, who is also the director of the NSA. That's quite a powerful guy who is not going to sit there and say, oh, you're the coordinator, are you? Of course I'll do whatever you say. You've got it absolutely right. And and so given the, the political imperative of uh, the Obama administration to find someone who's got a commanding presence and has both the bureaucratic and political skills to survive all this infighting, um, well... Perhaps Melissa Hathaway was caught up in all of that, and though she was competent, um, was both um, she saw herself as linked too closely to the Bush administration, and then others perhaps saw her as not charismatic or commanding enough a figure to thrive in such an environment, and in one where you'd have to really contend with this new emerging power center of the cyber command. You've got it absolutely right. So. Everyone is now looking to see who will be the new cyber coordinator and what is the Pentagon going to do with this cyber command. Uh, While everyone agrees that the National Security Agency, which is the country's largest intelligence agency, has the most skills uh, to protect computer networks. So General Alexander gets another job. That's by the sound of it. And also Ms. Hathaway goes off to work for Google or something. She hasn't said yet where she's going, and she says she doesn't yet know, but it's, it will probably be in the private sector. Okay. Uh, that's a, it's a marvellous story. We shall keep in touch on this, Ellen Nakashima. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having yeah. me. Well, with me in the SITREP Roundtable, Dr. Claire Spencer from the London think tank Chatham House, a cyber organisation. Dr. Rosemary Hollis from City University and the former Kremlin foreign policy advisor, Alexander Nekrasov. You're a cyber man, aren't you, Alexander? Well, sort of. Yeah, sort of. But uh, I mean, you're the, you're, you're the big name in Twitter. You've got to be a cyber man. Well, I'm not a big name in Twitter. You know, I'm not Stephen 4, Fry or something. 4,000 or something like that followers. No, I the point it. is this. That former the, vice president followers. The Russians you. were monitoring the Pentagon developing the Internet in the 1960s. Mm. 
And the idea was that uh, the Pentagon would throw it over the whole world as a net and will start plugging secrets from everybody. That was the concept as the Russians saw it. But uh, the Russians also understood that this monster might turn around and attack the creator, like Frankenstein, and it did. Because the Pentagon and the uh, government, the US government, has lost control of the Internet. There are people, hackers in Russia, who go in regularly into the Pentagon's uh, files and look at them and disappear. You can't find them because they're in somewhere in Siberia, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, the point is you this. certainly can't get them extradited. The point is this, that the hackers I spoke to, they said to me it's impossible to protect um, your files because hackers are one step ahead of the government usually. And that's why the best hackers are hired by the biggest banks, biggest ministries, biggest everything, to work for them. They don't put them in jail. They hire them uh-huh. because they are the best professionals to stop hackers like them getting into the system. That's right. I mean, it's, it's always struck me... Millions are paid to them, by the way. Why don't we all get these sort of people? Which ministries can afford mm. these, these hackers? Oh, no, no. The, the banks mostly it's, pay them. Yeah, and, and, and ministries use them. They just come in and say, you know, we need this guy for two hours or something. And the banks, well, they, they oblige. But you see, uh, we... I mean, <clears throat> we, sorry. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the British, the French, Swish... Swish, the Swish, Swiss, the Swish, um, yes. the Danes. They've been doing this for years. I mean, this is what GCHQ is does does for a living, isn't it? We hack one way or another into everybody's electronic systems. I mean, your place is at um, um, Claire at Chatham House is full of ex sort of spies and GCHQ really? people that are doing this all the time. You're referring to the wonderful report on cyberspace and the national yes. security of the United Kingdom. Well, they're investigating it. I don't know if they're specialists. I mean, they write reports. I hope they're specialists. We're going to have to read it. On. Well, there's a difference between understanding the dynamics and actually doing it, as, as yeah. Alex has said. It's interesting how the junction box outside Chatham House is constantly being repaired. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Would you like to see our internet connection? My box is so full of spam. I mean, it must be somebody trying to... Oh, that's you personally. I mean, it's our firewalls it's a little, are but, uh, absolutely t- useless. It gets, it gets quite interesting because, I mean, on, on the personal level, um, do you know, everybody knows the story about um, Gary McKinnon, who is a Brit. Um, I think he's from... Is he from Yorkshire or somewhere like that? And he has been uh, hacking into NS, uh, uh, NASA yeah. and also the Department of Defence. And he said he was looking for UFO files. I mean, he's mm. an X-file man mm. through and through. And what happened is that the Americans twitched this and said, we're going to have him out for extradition. And the Brits said, yeah, quite, quite right. Send him out for extra- extradition. You can try him for all you're worth. Because we don't like hackers either, do we? Unless but we Americans want to interrogate him. You see, that's the main thing. Not Give him a job. Maybe well, become may, the coordinator. Exactly. The point is for. he might disappear somewhere and he will be actually telling them how to he got in so that they can protect themselves. That's very important because mm. all that um, cyberspace terrorism, whatever you call it, these are people who are one step ahead of the government always. Mm. And that's why the government needs them, <laughs> strangely yeah. enough, to help itself. But I spoke to the professionals, and they said there's no way you can protect. That's right. Uh, I mean, but the, and the American prosecutors in this case, who are going to prosecute McKinnon if he does get nicked over there, he says, and I'm going to quote here, the prosec- chief prosecutor said, this is the biggest military computer hack of all time. But it seems to me that you hire the guy immediately. Of course, that's you what they're going to do. You don't put him in a slammer for 15 years. No, no, but they're going to hire him. Why are we allowing him out of the country? Because they're going to have a a court case 
Mm. They're going to punish him publicly so that everybody else understands you can get 15 years or whatever. And then they're going to quietly take him. I can't, I can't decide what kind of issue this is. I can't decide whether it's like the Roman Empire and the barbarians, you know. So sophisticated is the infrastructure now that it's utterly vulnerable to mm. crude sabotage. Um, or whether it's a problem like climate change, it's too big. Mm. So people operate as though it can't be resolved and we're not as vulnerable as we probably are because we don't know what to do about it. I mean, this is one case that you're debating, mm. but it seems to me that the stable door has long since... But the thing is that why that uh, Melissa Hathaway was so important when she set up this thing under the Bush administration, this 60-day report and study, is to actually show how vulnerable they are and when you think, for example... Yes, but since you can't do anything about hmm. it... Well, you try to protect as much as you can. Well, one of the things you can it's do... Is well, like a race, yeah, you know. Yeah, but one of the things that she's saying you can do... In the United States, for example, in Washington, there are four intelligence agencies. Fourteen, sorry. Fourteen. One, four intelligence agencies. And she said you just got to bring them together. But that's been said before. Yeah, but that you've got to bring together on, on this the whole of cyber security. inter-service rivalry, the same issue. I mean, the British are supposed to have certain advantages because we're relatively small. And it's possible to have... You have to have more cooperation between agencies and you can't have that bigger power struggle and you can't have that bigger proliferation of intelligence agencies or armed forces commands yeah. or whatever. But we all know about Echelon, don't we? This is the... Yes, we've the, heard of it. Yes, Echelon. It's the interception and of, hmm. of signals. Well, the funny thing is... But wait, a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, this guy, apparently, and this is uh, quite a big thing. I mean, it's United Kingdom. United States of America, and who else is it? The, 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 the Dominions, the Dominions, right? Yeah. Uh, New Zealand, Canada, Australia. They're all in this uh, echelon thing. Um, they're all uh, interrogating signals, cyber security, right? And they're not only interrogating, they're interpreting them. This guy has done it. He's actually gone through this thing like a hmm. like woodworm, hmm. and it's starting to fall apart. Now, again, this is the fellow that you need. Tell me how important this all is. Does it stop wars? Does it start wars? Does it make war more interesting? And the answer is probably no, not until you've gone to war. Is that right? Well, I, I think we go back to the discussion about intelligence in Iraq before the invasion mm. in 2003. The idea w was that if you had people on the ground, they would know a lot more about what was really going on than if you were reliant upon purely trawling electronic traffic, yeah. listening in on exiled Iraqis. I mean, we all know of people who did know something specific about the Iraqi WMD programs and volunteered to tell the Americans yeah. what they knew, and they said, no, 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 don't need you, don't trust you. Uh, it, it, I mean, you're on our side, but we don't trust you. <laughs> but, uh, but the problem with Iraq, they didn't have computer systems. That's why the Americans couldn't intercept them. That's well, the bit. Well, the that's the I think Rose, Rose is touching on an important point: is what do you do with all this intelligence? You can intercept till the cows come home. There was evidence after 9/11 that people had been warned in the right places that something was afoot and something was going on. So the too problem much. is that too much of it. It's the human side of this. What do you do with the intelligence? And if you look at the scale of the problem. It's the interconnectedness. If this is something which is dealt with as a purely security issue that has no bearing on anybody else, I mean, the firewalls between what is security and the rest of us, I mean, the money 
I mean, the real side of this is the criminal activities, the siphoning off of money, the credit court card fraud and all that sort of thing, which allows for the real activities, which is terrorism. So information can be protected or not protected. The issue is probably elsewhere. And because all these things are interrelated, you need far larger a scale of cooperation between the public and private sectors, between individuals who are worrying about credit card fraud, identity theft at the individual level. We are all implicated in this. So how on earth are you going to coordinate everybody? Just the parallel with climate change is, is spot on. Everybody has to do their bit, and yet nobody knows where to start, and nobody knows how to coordinate it, and it, everybody else is, is it, very suspicious. Is it just of what a the case that cyber security, or the whole cyber thing, um, is the fact we got it, that we can do it, and it, it's sort of ir, ir, almost irrelevant to what we, how we use it. Oh, I'm thinking that the the terrorist threat is the sexy issue. And uh, the flying planes into the World Trade Center, mm. very low tech, mm. effectively, way of uh, hitting the United States. Underground in London. And Buses. Indeed. Dead easy. And with a human IEDs, target. IEDs, dead easy. With a human target. Mm. And it is the kind of war preferred by the perpetrators to the kind of damage that you could do to an entire economy by bringing it down by attacking the kind yeah. of systems yeah. of the individuals and their bank accounts that Claire is talking about. Mm. No, but the point is this, that, well, that, that with Iraq, a very important on. point is that <laughs> they couldn't trace anything through cyberspace because Iraq was using the old methods. Yeah. The commanders, commanders gave away written orders. So that's it. They had nobody on the ground. Cyberspace doesn't work. They couldn't do anything. Maybe if, if they attack North Korea, for example, they'll have to remember that. Because North Korea... Has nothing. <laughs> they talk to is each other. Is that why Somalia is such a problem? Well, of because, course, of yeah. course. Yeah. Because yeah. Somalia is financed from yeah. London, by the way, in Dubai. <laughs> so <laughs> the pirates are financed by people who sit here, so we can catch them, actually, through transfer. Are, are they in the curry shops? Uh, no, no, no. They are the uh, Somalis who live here in Dubai and in Paris. Australia, and it's been written Australia. in the press, which I find amazing. They know where they are. They know how the money is going. They can't track anything. Yeah, I hear, so it's I all hear you, your lot, your, I mean, I say your lot, I mean, uh, <laughs> Russians, are going down off the Somali coast and they're doing pirate tourism. They well, go, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. You know, and yeah we like yachts. to see, you know, real professionals at work, yes. <laughs> real professionals? <laughs> well, I mean, the pirates, I mean, they're professionals. Come on, I mean, American Navy is there. Everybody is there. Sixteen uh, navies are there. They can't do anything about it. Yeah, listen, them. I want to move on very quickly because we're going to talk about George, your favourite subject in a minute. But, <coughs> excuse me. God, too late for grapes, I tell you. Um, Hillary Clinton is uh, talking about Somalia today. Um, and uh, she had to go to Nairobi to do it next door Kenya because uh, it's too dangerous for her to be in the Somalian capital Mogadishu. Now, I throw you this thought. Somalia and Kenya is exactly like Afghanistan and Pakistan in as much that you've got a completely failed state uh, where the government is in control of four streets and that's about it in Mogadishu. And Kenya next door, where it's just about triggering along. Um, but if you disturb it by putting the so-called extremists, get them over the border, you've got the same Pakistan-Afghanistan situation. Discuss. Or right. Well, discuss. Uh, I'm, I mean, it is, it, is, it is similar and it's not in the same, I mean, you know, at the I same know. time. Mm. So on the one hand, yes, it does look actually quite similar because you get the complete chaos on the ground in Somalia. 
and you got a sort of a sort of a government in Kenya which is not really very strong and uh, had a, has a problem. And the same, obviously, in Afghanistan and well, Pakistan. Well, Mr. Odinga is the only one in, in, in Kenya that's got a problem, isn't it? But unfortunately, you see, the piracy problem here is a completely different thing, because... Um, no, wait, 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 no, no, piracy, I'm, I'm going to yes. get out of that, of that structure, you see, that's the problem. Yes. And also you have uh, uh, the um, well, other... Well, piracy poppies... You know, is that the equivalent to poppies? Oh, there's a nice parallel. Yeah. Poppies. Well, why yeah, should we care about Afghanistan? Well, it is the main source of... Heroin. Yes. 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 Well, why should we care about Somalia? It is the main source of, of piracy. piracy. Yes. Yeah. No, and and where point. do they get their guns from? Yemen. I think you're looking too further, yes. too far south. Yes. It's the Yemen-Somali link. Yeah. Which is very but the, the, the And this has nothing to do with cyberspace. And it's all very much... The same stuff as they were dealing with two centuries ago in that same part of the world. And also Almost exactly the same. And we were dealing with the same problem in Afghanistan, certainly in, was it 1838 was the first Afghan war? Yeah. Or yes, and uh, they were trying to solve the problem of piracy yes. by religious fanatics in the Persian mm. Gulf in yeah. the early 1800s. And the Royal Navy was down the, that coast, off that Horn of Africa coast, that Somali coast. But you know what they were doing then? The Royal Indian Navy. No, the Royal Navy was there. Oh, Do okay. you know what was... You, no, the Royal Navy was there. Do you know what they were... They shifted boats around, um, uh, or ships, as they were, as boats around the Horn, to do a simple thing, anti-slavery. Oh. And then they used to capture them from the French, and guess what happened? Guess what they did? They didn't know where to take them. Well, they recruited them, so probably. No, 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 no. They, they dumped them. them they dumped, uh, dumped, dumped them in Arabia, where they became... No, Seychelles. Liberia? Seychelles. Oh, right. <laughs> Seychelles. In fact, the governor of the Seychelles didn't know whether it was French or the, or, the, or, the, or the British were turning up, and he used to have two flags. Mm. And he'd have it on the tower, and if he saw it through his spyglass, it was a French flag up when they took a look. Anyway, we're, we're, we're being facetious, but it's true. It's true. Now, Georgia. Georgia and Russia. One year ago... Tomorrow, Alexander? Yes. Yes, isn't it? Big Alexander. Day, big uh, day. Georgia and Russia went to war ostensibly over uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Uh, Neither Georgia nor Russia have been relaxed over the conclusion of that conflict. And this week, the tensions between the two surface with claim and counterclaim over alleged hostile acts. It comes soon after a high level visit to Georgia from the Americans and the approach of the first anniversary of a bloody conflict. Jamie Gordon reports. A year ago this week, a war began right on Europe's doorstep. Georgia launched an assault on the disputed areas of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Russia repelled the move and sent troops into Georgia proper, occupying the towns of Gori and Poti. There were naval skirmishes off the coast of Abkhazia, and by the time some sort of ceasefire had been organised, hundreds were dead or injured. In the years since, the Georgian president, Mikhail Saakashvili, has faced domestic unrest. The opposition claim he bungled the war and blame him for failing to strengthen the rule of law and democratic freedoms. On the international front, there have been concerns about the Saakashvili administration and the apparent desire to remilitarize the country. The consensus appears to be that a politically stable, peaceful Georgia would help convince South Ossetians and Abkhazians that integration would be in their best interests. Russia, however, wants to maintain its influence over the territories. The US Vice President Joe Biden visited the Georgian capital, Tbilisi, just a couple of weeks ago, counterbalancing the trip to Russia by President Obama. And Biden reaffirmed the American view of the area when he addressed the Georgian parliament. We will not recognize Abkhazia and South Ossetia as independent states. And we urge 
We urge the world not to recognize them as independent states. And we call upon Russia to honor its international commitments clearly specified in the April 12th ceasefire agreement, including withdrawal of all forces to their pre-conflict positions and ultimately out of your territorial area. However, amongst the fanfare of Biden's visit and the careful words, the vice president also made it very clear to the Georgian leadership that there is no military option to reintegration and also chastised them for failing to halt the political infighting that was slowing the whole process of reform. The question of whether there was a plot for the US to rearm Georgia in the future was denied by both sides, despite Russia's assertion that the deal was at least being talked about. But the Georgian Deputy Foreign Minister, Giga Bakaria, did little to dampen the debate. The United States were the first country who pledged uh, uh, a very significant support, $1 billion, uh, and, and fulfilled already its pledge. So it's not only words. Uh, and uh, cooperation in many other fields is ongoing, and again, it's much more than words. Certainly it can be uh, elevated to a next level, including uh, in defence cooperation. As the first anniversary of the war approaches, the sabre-rattling continued this week, with Russia claiming Georgia had fired rockets into South Ossetia, and Georgia in turn accusing the Russians of trying to seize more of their territory. The EU monitoring mission in the area said there was no evidence of either claim. South Ossetia has just signed a new deal with Russia, giving them the responsibility for border protection. And with deep suspicion and downright hostility on either side, there's little to suggest that there won't be a repeat of the events of August last year. A year ago this week, a war began right on Europe's doorstep. Gordon, um, just reminding us that it all started a year ago on, uh, on the doorstep. Twelve months on, OK. Um, have we got any idea who came out of it well, if anybody did, uh, Alexander? Well, first of all, we, we must understand one thing here. This is the result, this is the, uh, of the Soviet Union breaking up in a chaotic way, in a very terrible way, and this is the, sort of, the ghost of the Soviet Union haunting this, because uh, the, there, will be, there are many more problems around the Soviet Union where things are not resolved. Okay, this one came and became a war. Now, uh, I must stress here that Saakashvili is not a simple man. My grandmother was teaching him French when he was <laughs> nine, and I remember when he gave his first speech accepting the presence, he said, I owe my liberal credentials to Mario Lvovna Chivchivadze, that's my grandmother. And she gave me this idea of freedom and liberalism. My grandmother was a monarchist, so the... Silly man didn't understand even that, that she was not a liberal. But the point is this, that she uh, told us that Michael was a bit of a sort of a naughty man, mischievous boy. And uh, the point is uh, that I think he decided to, 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 to take Moscow's bluff and test it, you know, and he sent his troops in and Moscow's just waiting for it. And it just poured down, and, and, and of course... We, well, they were sitting outside, weren't they? Well, they, 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 can you imagine? They had man, uh, exercises yeah. before he attacked yeah. uh, South Ossetia, so they were ready. But the problem was... They that, still lost their general. He got well, well he, they didn't lose him. He was wounded, yeah, when, right. uh, and uh, uh, there was no air cover. But what it showed to the whole world, first of all, when you say who won... Uh, Putin initially, obviously, gained advantage in PR terms in Russia itself. But then everybody saw the footage. 
the Russian army was not strong. It was not a real proper army. It was not a fighting force. And when I and when we when we not saw ten foot tall. when we saw the Chechen battalion was hot, <laughs> being dri- driven into South Ossetia. These are cutthroat killers from Chechnya. Mm-hmm. So we realized even the commanders were not proper trained. The Russian commanders. So the operation was not a success. And eventually, of course, that started to trickle down, and everybody started to realize. The Russian army is in a bad shape. Mm. What also was the point, and I made that point very strongly when I was covering that, you know, a year ago. And I said, look, look at the footage of news, Western news footage. Look how poor Georgia is. And that is a country that's supposed to receive billions of dollars of aid from America. Well, the Americans pay the, all the officers, don't they? The but not just yes. But where's the pay money? The salaries. My question to Goes the president. Bank, my, pre- my question to Mr. Saakashvili was, where's the money? Mm. What did you spend the money on? Because look at your poverty-stricken country. Excuse me. And that was the question which brought down the Georgian ambassador when we had a debate, mm. because he was really caught off guard. Because I hit him from the other side. He was expecting me to say, you know, ah, we are the tough army, we won, and so on. No, I just said, w- w- where's the money? Yeah. Where's listen, the listen, I was talking to someone this morning. Um, Alexander the Great. Mm. That's me. Or the nearly great. <laughs> um, or his mum, his grandmother. Was well, grandmother most of them. Was it your grandmother or your mother who taught him He French? and his tribe will take on the whole of the Northern Caucasus, it would appear. No, 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 it's impossible. Well, it, this, I mean... The, 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 somebody was saying to me this morning they they thought that uh, he feels like a sort of um, if you like, a, an Israel of the Caucasus. Who? Can you see the comparison? Sakashvili. The Israel? Yes. Well, he, sort of, yes. Yes, yes. yes. You're, you're right in this. Yes, because he sees that as the main uh, sort of conflict area in the whole of Caucasus. Yes. Yes, yes. that would be right. He's no... Uh, and he can get the American support for it. Well, Americans are, are losing faith in him. You know, mm. when, when Joe Biden came over and said all those things which you, we just listened to, the Russians said, okay, tell us about Kosovo then. You're not going to accept uh, <laughs> South Ossetia. How did you do Kosovo? How did that go down mm. for you? And he was absolutely, and not, not him personally, but the Americans were gobsmacked because Kosovo is mm. not really a good thing. Mm. They did, and in Europe. And that's the point, you see, because if not for Kosovo... I, I, I think they still think it was a good... No, 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 you, they can think whatever they want. And Europe people didn't like it. You can't tear up a hang country. Hang on, hang on, which, which bit of Europe didn't like it? Well, I most mean, we of talk it, about most Europe. Of the Spanish people didn't like it because of the Basque problem. They said, what are you doing? What the hell are you doing? We have a Basque problem, which is exactly the same situation. Very many people, in Italy there are problems, in France there are problems with this. And, and Russia was obviously saying, we have problems like that too. So to say that Kosovo was illegal and this is illegal, that's the problem. Can if I just, no Kosovo existed, can I get back, then there'd be no problem you know, with that. Uh, 12 months on rather than, than at the time, um, if you look at, for example, the European Union, it sort of set, I mean, Sarkozy and Co, mm. or tell, they, they put in process some sort of quick reaction peacemongering, didn't they? Yeah, but now they're stuck. I mean, there's 225 EU monitors lurking around the borders of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. How long are they going to be there for? What are they? What's the end game? 
I mean, uh, they've been praised by the Russians. That's that's one piece of... That's, that's, that's dangerous. But exactly. What does that mean? They're ineffectual, but, yeah. usually. I mean, a bit like... As long as they don't get themselves killed. Yes, um, a bit like know, the observer teams in, in Lebanon, isn't it? Some, well, I was going to say there's similarities in, in that part of the Middle East, but, if you but like. The, the, you have these missions, but, uh, hang on, BAM but, but, and but, the police but, and things that get stuck forever. Basically, there was a system which was which reacted quicker than the person that had the client state, i.e. the United States. Uh, the United States didn't act very quickly. And when I listened to Biden, that report in um, Jamie Gordon's piece about uh, Biden, I sat there and I thought, George Bush could have written this. And I'm just wondering whether Obama's lot have actually moved on over uh, Georgia and it's still sort of Bush-type policy. Anybody? Well, well I, I, I think actually some of the earlier stuff that we were hearing about cyberspace security and uh, Obama's intentions and then them falling short in terms of execution, it's, it's the same sort of thing. I mean, how new can policy be on all these kinds of issues? And Obama did inherit a country that uh, had lost a great deal of its strength because of some of the things that the United States has done. And we, d we do know that it's impossible for the United States to take on every cause they would like mm. to defend. So it's a means-ends thing, basically. Yeah. Well, apart but, from Black Hawk Down, I mean, when we were talking about sort of Somalia, for example, I mean, in theory, there are people looking, and I can't remember what it was, one of the um, Kenyan newspapers that the, um, the, the Americans have arrived breathing fire. Um, but what are they going to do? Well, I think one of the issues is there's no longer an appetite in the States. Don't forget, this is the week, or certainly the months over the summer, they're fighting over this health reform yeah. process in the States. It's all about domestic politics. There's 11 no pages appetite. in Time magazine. There's no week. appetite and no money and no backing for the money for micromanaging these sort of issues anymore in the States. You know, one of the reasons Obama was voted in was that people were sick of Bush having said he wasn't going to intervene, running around the world and wasting loads of money and American lives for problems which are essentially insoluble. And I have a feeling this one, you know, most Americans, most Europeans, I have to say, would be extremely hard-pressed to say where on earth South Obsetia is, where Abkhazia is, and where Georgia is. Well, that's how you teach Americans geography. You send them to war somewhere, don't you? Well, exactly, you? But, but they still don't know where they are. But no. you ask us, you ask what year yeah. on what will happen, yeah. what's happening. Yeah. The problem is that both regimes need a war. Saakashvili does need a conflict of some sort because the economy is in terrible shape in Georgia. Mm. Misuse, corruption, everything. In Russia, the economy is not very good. That's why we saw bodybuilding, we saw that naked uh, <laughs> President Putin, oh, sorry, Prime Minister Putin well, yesterday. Well, according to BBC television, you're, you're, you're a hero of Putin. Well, yes, that was uh, strange, wasn't it? But mm. according to Sky News, uh, we, we did a very long piece on Putin's uh, photo. You yes, know, I all saw his naked. Oh, you saw me, yes. <laughs> and I said, I am proud to be Russian on that day. I said, and, <laughs> and the presenter Colin started laughing hysterically. But, but the point is this I didn't follow any of that. I dare say your listeners weren't either. The, anyway. the economies in both Putin on a horseback. Uh, oh, that bit. Yes, but Alexander in the studio. Alexander had a very funny. Alexander goes in the studio and they edited a bit. Ends up with him saying, No, that's BBC One, 10 o'clock news. They cut off. Putin, great guy. Yeah. <laughs> on for the calendar. Yep. Sorry, we're, this is getting out of hand. Uh, let's move on, can we? Because it, or it's not, not entirely moving on, uh, moving round a bit to Iran. OK, tell me about this. Uh, Mr Ahmadinejad is now officially president. He's, he's sworn in, yeah? Uh, and he said in his swearing-in speech that he called for national unity, but the absence of some of his key critics who are 
senior establishment figures tells you that the country is divided at the topmost level. And the falling out really began when the supreme leader came out in favour of Ahmadinejad over all his opponents in the elections of June. That was stepping out of his role as above the fray and the neutral benign character. So weakening his own position. Weakening his own position. Now, and, and also, the two main contenders for the presidency against Ahmadinejad and former president Rafsanjani all were in government back in the 1980s along with the supreme leader who at the time was not supreme leader and they were sort of very much contenders for power. He gets the top spot and some old rivals resurface. So you've got two kinds of a problem there. You've got a falling out amongst the authors and the inheritors of the revolution and you've got a, a complete disenchantment by a section of the population that doesn't feel that that regime in any case represents them and their aspirations anymore. Right, Claire, two quick points, would you? Or one quick one. We mustn't get an idea that the people have taken to the streets because they want to get rid of the Islamic revolution. No, I think it's about, I think Rose has touched on this, it's, it's who's inheriting and who actually represents the revolution, its ideals. I mean, the, the whole idea of a revolution, and one of our Iranian academic friends quite recently said this, is the revolution is not yet over. It takes time to evolve. So there is still room for all the basic principles of the Iranian revolution to, to be there, but then to evolve for the 70% of the population who weren't born when it took place. Right. So what's interesting is that some of the old guard, until, until these elections, the general assumption from outside is, despite clear divisions between the main political elite they were rock solid on things like the nuclear issue, rock solid on the principles of the revolution, even though they weren't always well articulated. Now these cleavages are very public and they're bringing up some very surprising divisions, which makes the kind of vocabulary that's being used, frankly, in the media about moderates and conservatives very difficult to apply because mm. what does conservative mean in this Islamic revolutionary context? And when, what, a couple of weeks, Mr... Ahmadinejad says, right, this is my government, this is my cabinet. Is that when we start really sort of picking over the bones of it? Well, who's going to be in this cabinet? I mean, he's already lost. Uh, he sacked his intelligence minister, the culture minister, having tried to resign two weeks ago, actually made it public this week. Uh, public spokesman left. I think people are positioning themselves possibly behind the scenes for a possible end of regime scenario because but he's got an ever more narrow base on which to base this government. Well, you know, it, it is Khamenei, the supreme leader. But can we be cynical for once? With Fact, a very sure. ask a question. Yeah. Uh, ask one question. Isn't the Western press being, you know, wishful thinking <coughs> and saying the country is all alight with protest? It's only in, hmm. in Baghdad. Oh, sorry, Baghdad. <laughs> it's only in Tehran. <laughs> in no, it has been elsewhere. No, but I the mean, tiny, tiny things. But and that's see, not entirely the, true. The, but the point is this: that we haven't seen anything on, on the reporting, and 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 the point is this. Isn't this protest a blown out of all proportion? Because we see two groups inside the regime fighting with each other, right? And um, they're roughly the same. Nobody's saying that's that's the revolution is over. You know, that's it. So it's the same. It it, it is a mirror image of Russia. So I was about Union, to say, can you see any parallels? No, it's exactly it exactly split between the com uh, communist party inside the communist mm. party. Two groups fighting each other. I think there's one crucial difference between the factions. One might be more inclined to invite a war than the other. 
Mm. And the difficulty for the Obama administration, having committed themselves to dialogue, is that they get the leader who's most difficult to deal with, Ahmadinejad, backed up by the Supreme Leader. And they're in a quandary whether to push for the dialogue that they're committed to with him because it might not go anywhere or it might provide recognition of him and might undermine some preferable characters. In any case, they're being pushed by Israel to set a timetable for some kind of achievement on the nuclear front. And uh, having just come back from three weeks in Israel, the West Bank and Jordan, I'm fully aware that the Israelis are not letting go of this issue and they are only giving the United States until the end of this year to sort out the Iran nuclear question. And they're, they're still banging the war drum. Are, they, are the Israelis saying that if, they, if the Americans don't do it, we will? Correct. And they've already practiced refueling in will. the air. Uh, while I was there, I mean, you know, they, 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 it, for the that, flight into Zap. Correct, and we and Joe they have Biden the bombs again already available. Yeah. They have the bunk well, they've already been bombs. John, Joe Biden again uh, was the one that said recently, um, "It's up to Israel what they do." Yeah, yes, they do it for us. Yeah, and that would, and then the whole Middle East just goes into. In the meantime, you've had Congress passing uh, new legislation, which will give the president permission to push for sanctions which include denying Iran imports of refined petroleum because they need to import it, they don't have enough mm. refining capacity themselves. So this is the increased sanctions scenario, which is what the prelude to war. That's what happened with Japan, by the way, when it attacked America. They cut off its uh, supplies of energy and it attacked. It had no choice. The Americans basically forced Japan to attack it. Right. So that okay. we're seeing the same situation. It okay. will be war. So it's going to be war. Do you think so? Anybody? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not feeling comfortable. Right. No, I mean, they've still got six months to uh, do something about it. And there are That's some very long, analysts are saying Ahmadinejad himself, because of the narrowness of the position he's in, is actually looking for some way uh, to engage with the Americans. But it will be on the terms he sets out. And this is something the Americans may not accept. Yeah, OK. Uh, if you're wondering what's going on, you're listening to SITREP on BFBS Radio. With me, Christopher Lee, and still with me in the studio, Dr. Claire Spencer, Dr. Rosemary Hollis, and Alexander Nekrasov. Um, Rosie was saying three weeks in the Middle East. Um, there's almost too much going on there at the moment, isn't it? I mean, I look at Iraq, and I think uh, it gets right down the bottom of the newspapers because the Brits are not in there anymore. But when you look at the bombings that are going on, um, mosques, People getting killed, dozens getting killed. It's not a happy place. It's still the case, you know, that Arabs around the region and the Iraqis themselves regard the Iraqis as tough in a way that no other group of Arabs is and that they live with a level of violence and they will say so themselves. I mean, talking to Iraqis in, in Jordan, they, they they acknowledge that they, they're they a breed apart. And... Uh, you you have this very week a decision by the government of Iraq to take down the walls that shot up all over Baghdad in order to protect different neighbourhoods uh, when the the bombs and the violence were so much of a sectarian nature that you weren't safe as a Sunni next door to a Shia or you thought you weren't or whatever. So uh, they're, they're kind of forging ahead with the post-war evolution of Iraq, and Iraqis will say it'll get worse before it gets better. Mm. 
it's not much comfort, is it, um, in, in some ways, except to the Iraqis, Claire? Well, I mean, Iraq will never be normalised while the US is still there. This is always the case. While there's a foreign force, and I know that they're going to be there for years. Cities, they're gonna, well, but they do have a, an exit strategy uh, by 2011. And I think Iraq is, and Iraqis are positioning themselves uh, for that eventuality. But I mean, the normalisation of the place will not take place. And I agree with Rosie. It's likely to involve considerably more violence. We will see peaks again in violence before things settle down to a new status quo. And I don't. Th I think the verdict is still out on what that will be like. Don't yeah. forget, we've had the Kurdish elections, elections, which shows, you know, has highlighted the rivalry where everyone's assumed that at least the Kurdish areas are calm. They have held these elections, but you know, it shows tensions between but different countries. And it's going to be over resources as much as it is. I mean resources this is an oil exporting economy it's going to be over who controls the revenue from that largely but we've got over this idea do you remember we used to talk about the possibility of federation of three different states within iraq we've got over that haven't we or, or not i think there's still going to be tensions between don't forget the kurds are very much quietly interlinked with the turkish economy now the turks realize very early on that investing and there's a lot of uh, turkish investment <laughs> Uh, in the Kurdish areas, that they will play this game for what it's worth. They will not eventually want to see themselves subservient to Baghdad. They might pay lip service to a federation, but it'll be rather like the Scots and the English. Uh, I think that we sounded very gloomy when we said, you know, war and bombings. And I think the problem is that very many people say, if something happens in the Middle East, if the Israelis attack Iran, the whole world will explode into a third world conflict. No, it won't. That's the funny bit of it. No, it won't. But because we, we exaggerate. We didn't say so here. No, no, we, we said about said it was going to be war. But generally, if you read, you know, many, many uh, analysts, they would yeah. say, oh, it's going to be terrible. What will happen? Iran will unleash, you know, terrorism across the world. So everybody else just says, look, thank goodness for that. No, no. the Iranians <laughs> have another way of conducting war, which is by stealth by targeted assassinations over many years. If you look, no, but, but we're saying that the, the whole French, world... The, the Iranians the never actually go to war, do they? exocets to the Iraqis yes. against the explicit uh, advice, shall we say, of the Iranians, don't do this, you'll regret it, led to eight years of kidnapping of French, assassination of French officials, uh, funny bomb incidents which were eventually traced to the Iranians. They made but, it very but the clear. World didn't In the stop. end, the that's French the sued point. for peace. The world think, didn't stop. That's, no, that's... the world doesn't stop, but it can be very messy. We seem to have forgotten. We're, we're obsessed with terrorism now. We've forgotten how bloody it was. If you remember all the kidnappings in Lebanon, etc., in the 1980s. I'll tell you, the hang on, we've got to move on. Affected. But I'll tell you just quickly, uh, 20, I remember 20 years ago, uh, we, we, we do it every year on this programme, uh, what's going to happen next. And I remember 20 years ago, uh, the BBC Middle East correspondent, a guy called Jerry Butt, General Butt, um, coming into the programme, and he said, um, the new war is terrorism. And that was 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, new war is terrorism. And this is what will happen. And um, when they do the OBEs, we don't need cyberspace, just read Jerry Butt on it. I want to talk about something entirely different, and that, well, it's not quite different. Nuclear arms control. Uh, in Washington this week, it's emerged that six ranking senators have written to President Obama asking that before any new agreement between um, Russia and America, that's the on the Strategic Arms uh, Treaty, before any new agreement is submitted for ratification, and Congress hasn't got a big uh, reputation for ratification, it should be accompanied by a 10-year funding estimate to support enhancement of the United States nuclear stockpile. It's got something to do with the fact that they've just discovered that the guys that made a key element 
of one of the uh, warheads were all retired. And they never trained anybody else to do it. You know, it, you don't need cyberspace. I mean, this is good. Uh, on the line from the University of Bradford, Professor Paul Rogers. Um, it's amazing, isn't it, uh, Paul? There's no one left with the know-how to make parts. That's what they're really saying. For these particular parts, yes, they're... Um, this is Fogbank, isn't it, it's called? Fogbank is its code name. That's unclassified. <laughs> the word is that it's a kind of foam material which separates the primary, that's the nuclear fission component of a thermonuclear bomb, from the secondary, which is the, the fusion part. And for this particular weapon, which is in a pretty tight re-entry vehicle, and therefore there isn't much space for making changes, they're trying to refurbish very large numbers of them. It's the W-76, which is a standard one on the American and British Trident submarines. And they've been trying for some time to learn how to make this Fogbank stuff again. It's, it's quite dangerous, quite volatile stuff. And a combination of lost notes, um, demolition of old buildings, and as you say, retirement of the old uh, of the people who used to do it, means they're having great difficulty in doing it. And so what Congress is basically saying is, well, if you can't um, stabilize this thing and make it safe for another 20 or 30 years, we want a lot of money set aside for producing replacement warheads before you go into deals with the Russians. It, it's an extraordinary situation. But this question is the whole nuclear weapons treaty, doesn't it? It certainly does, in a sense that it would be quite a block on uh, on this particular agreement that the Americans are trying to do with the Russians. And Obama has made the whole idea of further moves towards slow but steady nuclear disarmament quite important. He really put it through at his Prague speech back in April. So he's got a, something of his reputation going on with it. There are some people who do argue that do you need to build these incredibly complex thermonuclear uh, systems. Can't you have much cruder, older ones which don't need this kind of technology? But that isn't cutting much ice with Congress. And of course, there's an awful lot of money in this, and frankly, quite a lot of profitability as well. Tell me, I mean, you mentioned the, um, the Trident II, the Navy's, uh, that is the American Navy's Trident II missile, um, has needs the system on the W 76 warhead. Does the Royal Navy need it as well? Will uh, we make our own warheads? There's a pretty strong suspicion that the Royal Navy would be affected, that they actually need something like this Fogbank material if they're going to keep the Trident system working. But the, the, the Ministry of Defence is notoriously uh, secret on these matters. But the indications are, I think from one document a few years ago, that Britain was buying particular components for the Trident, the British Trident version of the W76. Uh, and there is a presumption, or I can't put it higher than that, that this may have been Fogbank, among other things. So yes, there's a direct British connection, and if the United States can't sort it out, it may raise a bit of a, a shadow over whether the current Trident system is going to remain as effective as the Ministry of Defence would like it. Paul, Paul Rogers, thank you very much indeed. Now, Paul's going to be back with us next Thursday, that's the 13th of August, uh, because here on SETREP we have a special programme touching on this subject of Trident on nuclear weapons in general and asking, in fact, if Trident should be renewed. We've also got the head of Britain's leading think tank on the subject and the Cardinal Archbishop of Edinburgh, um, Keith O'Brien. He's talking about the morality, he would be, wouldn't he, of holding nuclear warheads. That's here on SETREP, 13th of August, 4pm UK time, or at any time you like, actually, any time you like, if you go to bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. Any other business? I think what's happening, if I may, um, is a new scramble for Africa, isn't it? I mean, thinking 11 days Hillary uh, Clinton's in Africa, um, I get the impression, Lucy, that um, 
Americans are sort of more interested in Africa at the moment than they are in the Middle East. It's interesting that you say that because in this recent trip, and it's going to endorse what you said, that, that Africa might be more promising, especially if you think, OK, let's concentrate on poverty, because concentrating on conflict uh, isn't getting us as far as we used to hope it would. And it may be that the Obama administration is finding the limits of what they can do in the Middle East because Netanyahu is not budging. He has an idea that he'll do a deal with the Palestinians, de facto deal, not a nice written treaty, which will give them more freedom of movement in the West Bank, which will um, put policemen and security forces on the street corners already done, more freedom of movement already done, behind the security barrier, and this will constitute some kind of uh, economic peace, he calls it, but the time is not right for a two-state solution. Obama's called for a two-state solution, and he said, sorry, no, time is not right. And uh, there's not a lot of Palestinians who actually think it's going to come about either. So having discovered early on in his administration that the locals are not going to play to his tune, it'll be interesting to see what Obama does. He needs a success. We've talked about Iraq. We haven't talked much about Afghanistan, but that is a bigger problem all the time and if the Middle East peace process is not going to be revived and produce a two-state solution then maybe Africa can be a good news story. And it also happened, just so happens that a minimum of 27% of American oil comes from Africa. That's always helpful, isn't it, to concentrate the mind on where your foreign policy should be delivered. Well, I was also going to add that it's the one area where Bush, much overlooked as one international plaudits, was the funding that under mm. the Bush presidency was given for the fight against HIV, malaria, water sanitation. I mean, in some areas, huge progress has been made, and that was a direct result of US funding. Um, I don't know how much of it was Bill Gates related as well, but I mean, there was a huge effort over the last decade to improve things. The only problem with Africa, of course, is one always gets the impression it's a bottomless pit, that the good news stories are small and they get very like Cap Verde. Most people don't know where it is, but you know, that's a good news story. Tend to be small and little islands of calm, whereas the big areas where no one can do anything, uh, such as Congo, DRC Congo, um, the Great Lakes area, I don't think is settled by any means. Somalia, as we've said, and it's not just. Somalia, it's the whole Horn of Africa, are too hot to handle uh, areas in which the US can't do anything about conflict. But development and good noise is about putting money to good effect, uh, fighting disease and everything else, has a certain amount of self-interest. And don't forget the Chinese interest. You're quite right to point to resources. Over the last few years, they got extremely worried about the Chinese pursuit of oil uh, in Africa, and they need to keep an eye on it. Well, they, the Chinese have been there since the 1970s when they built the Tanzania Railway, haven't they? Yes, but they haven't actually been buying resources no. in the way that they have and controlling them. And actually, I mean, there was a punch-up last week that I was amused to see between the Algerians and imported Chinese workers in Algiers. Yes. There are so many the of Chinese them. are cheaper. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, the unemployed They're the equivalent of our like East Europeans, now, aren't they? Algeria is somewhere the Americans are very interested in because of their gas. And, of course, the and Chinese all. own Rhodesia now, don't they? Or, uh, what do you call it now? Zimbabwe. I thought it was southern Sudan. Uh, but Christopher, yeah, they own Zimbabwe. You mentioned Somalia and uh, yeah. Kenya, but don't forget Zimbabwe and South Africa. Yeah. Because quietly, quietly, <laughs> Jacob, what's his name, Jacob Zuma, mm. he is creating a situation. I have been talking to some people in South Africa, and they're saying, boy, oh boy, is he doing things... And remember, Zimbabwe is out of control, technically speaking. It can explode. 
if certain groups start to interfere. Everybody thinks it's getting back online. Listen, we oh, haven't no. got much time left. Um, I, I was going to talk Afghanistan elections. How are they going to go? I mean, it's in, in, what, 10, 12, no, 20th, 20th of August, the elections. Is everything on stream for the security, do you think, Rosie? Well, I can only go by what they're saying. And, and, yeah. and, and we're all being asked to lower our sights and lower our sights. And there's embarrassment that um, Karzai is, is not popular, is not seen to have uh, strength across the country and is associated with corruption. Yeah. We had the breaking news on our website saying President Karzai asks the American to stay forever full stop, to protect the, the poppy crops. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, this is, I have to tell you that his, his website is a mischievous <laughs> bunch of guys that write Well, we do that. more Listen, of, uh, I want to, talking of mischief, um, uh, the Chief of the General Staff, Sir Richard Dannett, uh, he resigns the end of this month, isn't it? Should have gone earlier, but he wanted to do 40 complete years in the army, apparently. Good for him. Yeah, I always agree with that. He could stay forever, as far as I can tell. Anyway, um, <laughs> he is um, he's going. He's going to be chairman of, of some, uh, some think tank down the road. And he's also doing a book. And everybody at Westminster tells me, and the knives are out for him. Once he steps out of the protection of the MOD and his uniform, they're out to get him. Why would they want to do that? Well, what he's do people embarrassed say? them by stating the blindingly obvious, and hence all the debate that the Telegraph and others have picked up, which is the kit is insufficient, there aren't enough helicopters, we're not doing the right thing by our, by our boys, and we haven't thought through where the funding is going for the right equipment, for the tasks we've been asked to do. And this has been going on for the last decade. I was part, as I believe Rosie was, the Strategic Defence Review, where they were talking about rapid deployment and all this sort of thing. They knew then that this kind of equipment would have to change, and still we have these big dinosaur projects on the books. Now, he's he's been very outspoken about this. And they're going to knife him. They're going to knife him. How are they going to knife him? What can they do to him? They discredit him. They discredit him. Because David uh, Richards, General Sir David Richards, is coming in got different ideas that has to be said from uh, General Dannett. Quite different ideas. But he calls Afghanistan a war, etc., etc. Well, once you're outside the establishment, look at them all. I mean, uh, Rupert Smith's book on the use of force, you can be very articulate and that's say right. exactly and what you like. Yeah, and nine people read it. And that's the, that's the, that's the thing. You, well, you say things <laughs> that you say things when you're in uniform, people take any notice of it. They're uh, still wheeling out General Jackson, you know. He comments on a lot of things. So he does. Tell me the last one. <laughs> uh, exactly. Exactly. Um, Listen, uh, very quickly, we're going away. Uh, well, a lot of people are going away for um, their holes. Um, they used to call it leave, but now apparently it's called holes. Mm. What are you going to read? What are you going to tell people to read? Anybody? This, 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 this autumn, this August. David Gardner's Last Chance in the Middle East. It's a wonderful destruction, if you like, of what went wrong in the way of policy towards the Middle East, and he's suggesting... What's it called? David, David Gardner. Gardner. He's an FT journalist, yes. if I may advertise the FT. Yes. Uh, and it's Last Chance in the Middle East, it's called, that came out... And I'm talking ago. about being daring. I, I was astonished. I thought it was... You know, a bit of a rant. It was. It was very refreshing. Rosie, what would you tell people to read? If you want to be a teeny bit more um, sober in your criticism... Certainly not. Uh, Go on. Uh, it's John Gray, Gray's Anatomy, his set of essays which include a wonderful critique of why neither the neoliberals nor the liberals ha have a monopoly on truth. Truth? Oh. 
Correct. I mean, it, it, he's just a defence of diversity and disagreement. It's Careful, human, you get into Hegel next. It's the human truth condition. Is, truth is only an expression of reality. Das Kapital, of course, you must read Marx. Yes. That, yes. That's, yeah, that's no the book you need properly, to... Did they? Yes, now listen, you have to listen, study. We're going, we're going, we're going. I mean, it's getting heavy. I mean, you'll, you'll next have him on Proust. Um, we're back next week with a special programme on the nuclear weapons. I said that, didn't I? Who needs them? Uh, do join us then, Thursday at 4 o'clock UK time. Or you can listen again and podcast anytime you like at pfps.com forward slash sitrep. For today, many thanks to Claire Spencer, Rosemary Hollis and to Alexander Krasov. Don't forget, next week, nuclear weapons here on sitrep. I'm Christopher Lee. Guess what? Mary's still in the hut. We'll talk next Thursday.